Welcome. This is a show unlike any other show we've ever done before. I have so much that I want to say about this show that I could really screw it up if I started doing that because we have some really interesting guests and we have a lot of uh, ground to cover. But I think there are some really basic things that I do need to tell you. The first and most important is this is uh, an experiment that we're doing right now. I refer to it as radio for the deaf. There's probably a better way of uh, describing it. But um, what we're doing is that on Facebook Live, uh, on the Colin McEnroe Show page, there's a Facebook Live video feed uh, where you can see two interpreters who are going to be interpreting in American Sign Language uh, everything that happens on this show. It's, we'll talk a lot about this in the third and final segment. Uh, it's something that uh, Josh Nalea and I began to consider after we did a show about American Sign Language last year. One of the things that I realized was that one of the groups of people who did not really have any access to that show were deaf people who use American Sign Language. We didn't have any way of getting a show like that to them. So we're doing that today. We're going to do it again. I actually maybe should even tell you that uh, the next time we do it, look look at this thing flopping around. The next time we do this is going to be Wednesday, February 22nd. That will be a Betsy Kaplan show about shyness. I mentioned the producer Betsy Kaplan because she is one of the world's experts on shyness. So that's coming up. But right now we're doing this. And, And now we decided we would make this show uh, a little bit about what it is that we're in. in uh, this is that's incoherent. Let me try that again. We, we decided this show should, in some way, kind of mirror the effort that we're making with American Sign Language. But we decided to have it be a more expansive conversation about the concept of accessibility. I mean, raise your hand. Not that I can see it, but raise your hand if you think you're totally able-bodied. I mean, most of us aren't, right? I mean, I'm nearsighted, farsighted. I'm left-handed. Uh, I uh, my body has turned into some kind of motel for arthritis, you know, where there's just a vacancy sign blinking all the time. Arthritis, more arthritis is always welcome. See, you know, and most people have something. And, and if you're able-bodied, you might be only temporarily able-bodied. Uh, and in a way, what we wanted to talk about today is I think when people talk about accessibility, you know, they kind of have three things in mind probably. They're probably thinking – uh, about the blind, the deaf, and the people using wheelchairs, right? That's sort of the three groups of people. Uh, and, and those people obviously do require and deserve accessibility. But really, what you want is a built environment that kind of anticipates everybody's needs without having to go to huge extremes or call a lot of attention to itself. So that's sort of the first thing we're going to be talking about, a thing called uh, human-centered design, the notion that we can build things in real life and on the Internet uh, that work for a lot of different people and work for a lot of forms of, of, I don't know, I hate the word disability, but the impediments that would be hard to anticipate. So um, talking to us right now is Gabriella Sims, Director of Administration for the Institute for Human-Centered Design, and Anne Gibson, an information architect who writes about design and development. She's going to be uh, talking to us specifically about the Internet. Um, But let's begin with that notion uh, of just what good human-centered design is. Because in a way, in a way, Gabriella Sims, if we, if we build a good environment, if we build an environment that has good things in it uh, and has human-oriented things in it, uh, we're going to help everybody. There's a lot of ways in which good design 
uh, for just for all kinds of people, for theoretically able-bodied people uh, and, and, and good design for people with disabilities. It's kind of the same thing in a lot of instances, at least based on what I've been able to, to see of your work. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Um, sure, and thanks for having me. Um, you know, we do, we do consider it sort of, you know, if you really focus on the user, on the widest range of people operating in the widest range of situations, that you won't have to necessarily create a special design. Obviously, there are going to be those instances when that is required. But if you really think of it as a design process, you're going to meet the needs of a far greater number of people. So, for instance, um, you know, daily things that can become irritating. You know, you go to turn on your shower. Mm-hmm. And why is the control all the way in the center of the shower? So you reach in, you're adjusting the water temperature, you're getting slightly wet. It might be in an awkward position. That could be put very close to where you enter the shower. But over the years, it's just become something that goes into a standard position, and it's never really given any more thought than that. Right. And so sort of somebody needs it. And, and I think one point that you make that's a good one is that one of the places we can see this a lot, okay, we have our own home environment, which presumably is set up the way we want it or at least in a way that we find satisfactory or we'd change something about it. Maybe the next place we're going to run into new things, particularly in an area like a bathroom, obviously, you know, any kind of public accommodations. But I feel like hotels are a place where – and particularly hotels – that are built recently, where you might see something where you think, oh, why doesn't, why didn't everybody do that? Why, why isn't every bathroom I use like that? And, and I know you've seen some things that you think are good things in that sense. Yeah, I was recently staying in a hotel, and when I, um, I didn't even notice it, I went to bed, turned off the lights, and as I sat down, I noticed a little light that shined from underneath um, the bed. It was sort of a brilliant idea that allows for wayfinding in the middle of the night when you're disoriented in a strange room. And I went on to see that when I got up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom, a similar light on an auto sensor popped up underneath the sink area, which lit the way and gave just enough light that if I wanted to turn on the lights in the bathroom, I could, or I could leave them off. So just, um, you know, a nice feature. The other thing that happens in bathrooms rooms in um, hotels quite often, is that when they're designed, they stack all of the bathrooms in the same location, one on top of the other. So, you know, maybe the accessible room is down the end in the left-hand side corner, and all those bathrooms are accessible. But what they've forgotten is that when somebody arrives who might have strength on the left or the right side, they can't use that hotel comfortably because maybe they require you to transfer from the left only. So there's no option on a room that would allow you to transfer from the right or have grab bars on the opposite side. So sometimes it's just about the thinking. You know, we use these accessibility guidelines as the baseline, and then we like to add inclusive design on top of that. But a lot of times that turns into just tell me what I have to do. And that's how those things happen. It's like, oh, I need to make an accessible bathroom, but they don't go on to think further about it. 
Yeah, that just tell me what I have to do, I think is unfortunately the way the world reacts uh, and, and probably is the difference between the term accessibility, which people I think tend to associate with uh, the, the ADA and with federal regulations and human-centered design, which I think is a more elegant way of talking about this. I, an example from my own recent life, uh, my friend and pastor uh, had, uh, had ALS uh, and was um, – rather daringly, while confined to a wheelchair, had decided to fly from uh, Hartford to Minneapolis and give a speech in a Minneapolis church, which was making us all very nervous. And and we got more nervous. She got to the church, and there was no way for the wheelchair to get in. And I'm thinking, wow, it's 2016, and you have a church that a wheelchair can't get into? So they built a ramp right there on the spot for her. And and that, to me, is kind of a metaphor for the way this works, right? It's like, tell me what I have to do. What do I – oh, this needs a – okay. I'll make a ramp right now. Whereas what you're talking about, Gabriella, is building an environment which, without getting, you know, having to get all that specific about tell me what I I need to do, thinks in a much more comprehensive way about what people need. Right, exactly. Um, You know, and it applies to all sorts of different environments. It applies to the outdoor area, to playgrounds for children. You know, I was at a park middle of the summer, and there was a huge expanse of a tent, beautiful, um, sort of like a sail tent over an area where kids were playing. And it allows kids to go in and out of the sun, which, you know, is also a health issue. There was more sunscreen on kids um, at some parks than at others, and it's because they don't have that flexibility of having shade. So, you know, these way to... The way to think, you know, goes from the built environment to the outdoor environment. You know, it sort of, it, you know, covers a lot of, um, a lot of areas, you know, digital, which you'll speak about later, graphic design, wayfinding um, design. You know, you walk into a hospital and you're already likely stressed and nervous, and now you have to pick your way through the lobby, through um, various elevator banks, and how do you get where you need to go? Well, if you have a great wayfinding system, that would be easy and alleviate a lot of angst for people. Um, I want to come back to some of those things, too, but I'm going to swing over to Ann Gibson for just a second here. Um, Ann Gibson, one of the things that you did that I loved was you did kind of an alphabet. Uh, Well, it wasn't kind of an alphabet. It was 26 uh, lettered examples of people who who maybe we don't always think about, uh, people who should be considered, whose needs should be incorporated into design on the web and elsewhere, uh, but maybe don't fall into the most obvious categories. And, and I don't know if you want to mention uh, two or three of those, uh, people who maybe tend to be forgotten as we think about how content gets designed. Sure. I, the reason that I developed the alphabet of accessibility issues was because I was having similar kinds of conversations uh, in the place where I was working, and we were working on trying to make our website better and our designs better, and it always came back to, I don't have any blind people visiting my website, I don't have any deaf, I don't have any, you know, whatever, and I kept saying that that's not the only place that we run into accessibility issues. Anybody can be having an accessibility issue at any time. I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate, but my life is filled with people who run into accessibility issues on a regular basis, and many of them are are invisible disabilities or invisible issues that you don't know about until you experience Uh, diseases like cystic fibrosis, where you may find that your energy is lower or you may be hooked up to some kind of uh, 
respiratory therapy machine while you're trying to use a computer and your hand's shaking because the machine's shaking you. Uh, diseases like cancer, chemo brain is a thing. You can't think as clearly when you're hopped up on medications that are taking care of the cancer in your body. How can we make uh, the important information you need to read about healthcare easier to understand when you can't think straight in the first place? And uh, even something as simple as MS, uh, it will eventually get to the point that it's obvious to anyone that you have MS. But when you first have the symptoms, you may just have tingling in your hands and feet that make it incredibly uncomfortable to use a mouse, but you still need to be able to use your computer. So where can we surface those things that people don't normally think about and say, these are real, these are legitimate disabilities, these are legitimate problems, and then there's also situations like somebody just had twins. They're holding two children or at least one child at any given time and trying to figure out what their bank balance is on their cell phone. Are they disabled? No. Are they doing what they need to do and it's limiting them to only one arm? Absolutely. Um, you know, some of the other examples that I thought were fascinating, uh, I think you said somewhere around 15% of people, for one reason or, or another, uh, don't easily distinguish left from right. I mean, the word doesn't necessarily correspond to the correct place. Uh, I am one of those. Well, you are one of those. Okay. So um, so instructions that say, you know, move your cursor to the left uh, are not particularly helpful to those people. Also, people who have photosensitive epilepsy, um, and I, I know of some instances recently where that's been a problem. But th- once again, that's the kind of thing we don't think about when we think about how can we make the, the Internet as friendly to all kinds of people as we can. It's really easy to make a website with a lot of great animation and looks flashy and and draws in the, the participant to a better experience. It's also really easy for that highly animated website on a large monitor to take somebody who's got vertigo from a car accident and literally make them physically sick by looking at your website. So is, uh, I know that you feel as though um, digital content and the digital environment uh, are a little bit different in terms of the fact that they offer almost limitless possibilities for accessibility. Uh, explain what you mean by that. Well, when we look at the, the baseline of what the web is, for example, or computers in general, but I'll stick to the web specifically, uh, the original HTML standards were to present documents, but they were already accessible. Like it was text on a screen that could be read by a screen by somebody who's looking at the screen or on a screen reader. The web itself does not care what your inputs or your outputs are. If you want to use a screen reader, you can use a screen reader. If you want to use a monitor, you can use a monitor. If you want to zoom to 400% so that you can read, all of that is there unless we specifically write something that stops it from working. Most of the time we don't do it intentionally. We're making a design decision for some other reason but we may not be thinking about the consequences of that design decision when we decide that this screen is not going to be able to be viewed smaller than a certain size, or you won't be able to zoom, or you won't be able to do something else. I, and I think you know that's not, that is a problem for the web, and, and, and maybe uh, the Internet has 
uh, a great potential to to not have that problem. But it's a problem for all of us too, right? I work in public radio, but when we talk about inclusiveness on on public radio, usually what we mean is, well, are there any African American or Latino voices on this show? Is it all men as guests? Did we book any women? You know, things like that. We don't really think about those twenty six different kinds of people in your alphabet. I mean, it, that's sort of not who we're representing always as guests, and we're not really thinking through any specific issues that a person might have. And I, I, I'm going to ask each of you this, but I mean, I, I assume there's no magic bullet for getting people just to think first and affirmatively and proactively about all this stuff. But, but Anna, I don't know, what, what would you like to see people do better, and how can you get them to do that better? Uh, what I would like to see people do better is actually think of ableism as a thing they have to worry about. Like, <laughs> using your examples of when I'm trying to make sure that I'm inclusive on my my radio broadcast, I to uh, am I representing African Americans and women and all of those other groups? Am I representing people with disabilities? Mm. Like, has everybody who I've had on my radio show, or as everybody that's represented in the pictures on my website, a perfectly healthy human being who's never had an issue with health in their life? Uh, if the answer is yes, you're missing a huge part of the population, which is constantly growing. So acknowledging that people are there, whatever the reason that we're acknowledging them, is the first step. Saying, yes, people with disabilities exist. They deserve to be represented on this website or on this radio show. They are just like you and me. So it's just a matter of adding them in would probably be the first step. Um, uh, Gabriella, one thing that you talked about uh, for us was the notion of user experts, too, uh, the whole idea of having some people. And once again, maybe not uh, just people who are blind or, uh, or deaf persons or people who are in wheelchairs, but you know, m- maybe just somebody whose vision isn't great. Um, walk through a museum or some other public space. Tell us what happens when you do that. Um, it's actually amazing to watch. I mean, it's amazing for some of our clients, and it's a great um, learning tool, as well as a great way to gather research, you know, and sort of put it out there and consistently be turning that over. But, you know, we were recently in a museum, and we had a user expert with low vision, and they, um, we asked, would you like to take the elevator? Would you like to use the stairs? And he said, oh, you know, I'll use the stairs. I'll get to see more of the museum this way. And as he went for the stairs, he he looked down, and he's like, oh, this might be more difficult than I thought because it was gray cement stairs, and they sort of all went down. And for him, they all blended into each other. So although he could still see as a low-vision person, you know, he um, said if these stairs were just tipped with a bit of a darker color, I would have a better sense of the space um, as I take my my steps down, and it wouldn't all sort of blend in and look like a long ramp. Um, and having a client there or, you know, the team of um, exhibitors there and museum staff was really, you know, they all, it was an aha moment. It was like, oh, you know, something that they never thought about. So by bringing the user experts in, not only is it an enormous learning opportunity, but you know, they carry that on through all of their other projects. They start to think about the people they've met who have been through their environments and how, you know, they're going to participate. Um, And this could be, you know, it's a range, you know, from low vision to somebody who might be, um, have a cognitive impairment or someone um, with a child with autism. So it, you know, it's a huge range of people. 
Right. I'm glad you mentioned that, too. One of the things that's been happening, at least around here in the last year or two, is theater performances are now uh, scheduled for uh, people who are on the autism spectrum. There are uh, both for movies and plays. Uh, there are sometimes things that um, either help or don't help people uh, somewhere on that spectrum. And, and uh, theaters, the good speed, I know, uh, not too far from here, has made a special effort with that, having a performance where people uh, on the autism spectrum will be comfortable. That's another example. Yeah, and Gabriella, maybe just talk a little bit more about benches, right? Sometimes there aren't enough benches or there aren't the right kind. Yeah, um, you know, again, a lot of our work has been coming out of museums, but it applies to the outdoor area as well. And um, having a bench, you know, that might have some armrests or even, you know, some posters, something that would allow somebody with limited upper body mobility to sort of push themselves off of rather than, you know, just a huge slab of, say, concrete or um, a wood bench, you know, having a back to it and having you know, various intervals, some um, way for somebody to sort of, you know, give themselves a boost up is hugely helpful. Um, the same way, you know, if you're walking through a park, a lot of times I might be um, walking with one of my um, my mother or my father, and they need to rest far more often than I might need to. And benches just seem, whenever I'm with them, to be so far apart. So although there's no guidelines or codes to say, put one every so often, by adding more benches, it helps people out who might have disabilities that you're not even considering. You know, we know that the um, most common reasons for functional limitation are, as you mentioned, what you have arthritis, but back problems, heart disease, respiratory disease, and these aren't identifiable. So, you know, you wouldn't even know that somebody has these. So creating environments that make them folks feel more welcome is so helpful. Um, I'm going to ask you about one more thing before we run out of time, Gabriella, because I think this is an example where something, a design tweak that can be helpful to almost anybody may also especially benefit somebody in one of Ann Gibson's uh, 26 uh, different categories. Uh, it's something that you singled out Target the store Target recently, it wasn't all that recently now, but they redesigned their prescription bottles. Explain how their prescription bottles got better. So their prescription bottles no longer are, and actually I will preface this with saying that um, they just um, put CVS in as their um, pharmacy option, and the the pharmacy switched their bottles back to oh, the no. little round ones, <laughs> and there was a huge outrage. If you you know you can Google it online and see, there were a number of news stories on how upset people were because their bottle it was much larger print, and the label was not sort of running in a circle around that somebody you know needed to read um, in tiny tiny fine print with all you know little warnings how you should take it. It was on a flat surface, and it could be color coded. So whether you color code it for the person in the family, you know, whether it's, um, you know, a husband, a wife, a child, or whether you color code it for um, the time of the day that you need to take it. So it was such a brilliant idea that, you know, suddenly went by the wayside. And now, you know, hopefully they'll bring it back because there has been a lot of chatter about it. 
Um, I'm going to uh, wrap up with one more question for Ann Gibson. But before I do, uh, let me just sort of remind you what else we're doing here, uh, which is that uh, this is an attempt to bring uh, radio to deaf persons. And to do that, we have two wonderful interpreters uh, who are in the studio with me, uh, J.K. and Mary Sue. How are things going over there so far? Everything okay? Yeah? I'm not mumbling or talking too fast or... Okay. And so every once in a while, you may hear me check in or deal with some aspect of this. Although so far, because so many people put so much work into this, it seems to be going pretty seamlessly. Uh, But anyway, that's one of the things that we're doing today, that on Facebook Live, uh, if you go to the Colin McEnroe Show page, you can see these two interpreters doing this show in ASL uh, for uh, deaf persons who want to experience a a radio show, um, which – we suddenly realized is something that deaf persons do don't, don't really do, uh, experience radio shows. So that's sort of another example of it. So, um, Ann Gibson, as we wind up here, you're somebody now who, you know, you are in a position to design content or work on a website. I don't know. Are there things that you do or think about now as you're building a website uh, that you wouldn't have thought about 10 years ago? Oh, definitely. Uh, one of the biggest things that I think about now is low vision because I had this conception before about two years ago that you were either blind or you weren't blind, even though I myself can't see more than six inches off the end of my nose without my glasses. It was like, well, I always have my glasses, so I'm in the not blind category. And I learned a lot about all of the different ways that low vision can exist, whether it's uh, detached retinas or um, ways that your, uh, your eyes can just fail you and techniques to use to look at a website that I may not have used before. So I'll tell you about one really quick, which is if you cup your hand to the point that you've got about the size of a soda straw, that little tiny hole, and then you look at your computer screen or you look at anything else for that matter and you scan over it, that's about the amount of vision that some people have. And they're still functionally using the internet, they're still doing their day-to-day tasks, they're doing everything else. So now when I'm looking at a particular page or a design and I'm looking at a form, for example, I try to make sure that if I'm scanning across with that soda straw, I can still find the save button and all of my instructions still make sense. And the label for the form is next to the form field. Those are things I wouldn't have thought of 10 years ago when, I, when my biggest concern was, will this work with a screen reader? Um, this is a, that's a great example to end with. Uh, we're going to take a little break here. Uh, we want to thank uh, both of our guests, uh, Gabriella Sims uh, and Ann Gibson. Um, I, once again, I do want to remind you, we're doing this. I should say one more thing about that because I don't want to give people the wrong impression. You know, this, this took a lot of planning to do mainly because we've never done it before. And there were so many things that we hadn't thought out very clearly. And, and I mean, we spent a lot of time laughing at ourselves because – we would take these simple problems and make them more complicated than they really were or fail to see a really obvious thing, which I think is very much the story uh, of working with issues of accessibility. Uh, But we've actually had a – I think it's fair to say – I mean, Josh – Nalea has done by far the most work on this, but so I probably shouldn't say this. But I think we've had fun doing this. I, I think this has been one of the most fun things that we've done uh, in a long time, trying to build a different kind of show, one where we could share it uh, with a deaf audience. So, uh, yeah, there turned out to be maybe a few more moving parts, at least initially, than we thought there were going to be. We're going to try to make it simpler and simpler. We hope other radio stations ultimately will look at what we did, maybe other public radio stations around the country 
country and go, oh, yeah, we could do that, too. So um, it was complicated, and we haven't solved everything, every single problem. But we've had a lot of fun solving these problems. And uh, I guess I want everybody to know that, that, you know, this isn't some kind of horrible chore that we're doing. It's something that we really have rejoiced in a lot. Although I was so worried about it. Now that I'm a praying person, a person who occasionally prays, I prayed about the show this morning. I wanted to make sure it worked out okay. We're going to take a break. We're going to talk about another aspect of this, very specifically for blind audiences, uh, the job of putting descriptive content into things like movies. This is a rocket science in some government facilities. So take a little time, implement accessibility. So I just learned another thing, which is that uh, our interpreters, uh, our wonderful interpreters, J.K. and Mary Sue, um, they can't move really. I mean, they can move their arms and stuff, but because we have to keep them in a shot for Facebook Live, uh, they can't move. So they're like struggling with – I mean, imagine standing in one place – you know, over a piece of tape for 49 minutes. That's basically uh, what their lives are like for the show. So during we, we let them kind of shake out their, their tinglings and cramps during the 90-second breaks. Uh, by the way, there'll be another 90-second break later. If, you're, if you are uh, experiencing this on Facebook Live and you wonder where the interpreters <laughs> went, we do have little 90-second breaks. And I think they show maybe the studio. I don't know what they show. Um, all right. So um, we're going to talk about a different aspect of all this. Uh, we're talking about the, uh, the idea of accessibility. And, and to begin this, uh, I'm going to play something. I don't think the interpreters have to do very much here. Uh, w- this is from one of the Republican presidential debates. And so imagine that you are the person whose job it is to uh, supply either the closed captioning or the descriptive content or, or, or whatever it is um, uh, for what you're about to hear right now. Oh, I believe it. No, no, I believe you know politicians much better than I do because for 40 years you've been funding liberal Democratic politicians. And by the way... I funded the, you. The, the I reason, funded him. You're welcome you know, to have the check back. I funded this be, Because let's I gave be clear. Him a check. Yeah, you gave, gave me five thousand dollars. Never funded and, me. And, and by the way, let's be clear. <laughs> Donald claims. Donald claims to care you know why? I about him. Don- he sent me Donald, his autograph. Donald, I understand rules Mr. are very Trump, hard for you. They're very confusing. You're doing a great job. I have his book. Okay, yeah, that, on that, your that reality TV show, not him. Thank you, Donald. Thank you for the book, Donald. Thank you for the book. Go ahead, Donald. You can get back on your feet now. There's a lot of fun up here tonight. I have to tell you. So the CNN closed captioner just eventually typed unintelligible yelling, which I think is fair. I mean, you know, if you could hear that, uh, you wouldn't get anything more than unintelligible yelling. Uh, But that it points to some of the challenges that are involved when you are trying to supply a kind of content or an augmentation to content uh, for people who aren't getting um, that part of the content. So we are now going to talk a little bit about descriptive video with Diane Johnson, president and CEO of Descriptive Video Works. So uh, first of all, Diane, welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much, Colin. It's great to be part of your show. Um, it's, it may be obvious to most people uh, by now what we're talking about, but maybe you should explain uh, how a descriptive video works works. Sure. Descriptive video basically is filling in uh, the parts of a show that someone that's blind or vision impaired wouldn't be able to understand. So we're painting a picture 
for them so they would hear the dialogue but they wouldn't hear uh, where the person is the location they wouldn't hear some of the emotion that's going on like we've done the uh, Olympics we did the Olympics for NBC so you think about how emotional some of the athletes would be a commentator wouldn't add that in so the scripted video is basically in between dialogue describing what is happening um, and so, yeah, so some of that you're having to do live in kind of real time, I, I assume. The Olympics are right. a good example. So, yeah, it's one thing to say that somebody, um, you know, just executed some gymnastics maneuver. But when the person is up on the stand crying, I think that's what you're talking about, right? That that might be something yeah. that yeah. you'd have to say. Yeah, yeah, there's different ways. I mean, some of them are when you go to a movie, you get a headset and the description comes through the headset. The other is when you're watching television and there's live um, you know, there's a lot of new aspects that have developed just in the last couple of years, really. So, um, for example, Hairspray Live. I think you were involved in su- uh, supplying yeah. content for that. How did the content get delivered? It was it was a fabulous opportunity. We did Hairspray Live uh, about a month or so ago. And so we were on set as the show was going on. So we were there for rehearsals ahead of time. We had the script, but of course, as you know, scripts change. So you have to be there live to see what's going on. So she's watching a feed um, that's coming through to her and she's describing. So, and there's certain things with a musical and something like that. You don't want to interrupt the music because it has plays an important part uh, in, you know, the whole experience that someone that's blind is having. You know, you think about a horror movie, and the music makes a difference as well. So you try your best not to step on dialogue and to also make sure that the music flow is enhancing the show and you're not interrupting that too. So for something like Hairspray, you know, we wanted to describe the costumes and the look and everything like that, but you also wanted people to get the flavor of the show because the music's still phenomenal. Right. So um, I, I'm, we're going to give an example of, of the work that you do. I have to say that when we tried something like this in our tech rehearsal, uh, it turns out to be asking a lot. Of, you've got basically descriptive content that is designed mainly for a, an audience that, that uh, is blind or has some kind of sight problems. Uh, and then we're asking interpreters for the deaf to, <laughs> to sign that out in ASL. Mm-hmm. It gets really, really hard for them. So um, this, uh, do yeah. the best you can over there, or I don't know. I don't know what we decided on. But uh, this is from Everybody Loves Raymond. So you're going to hear Deborah and Ray uh, and Allie and Robert and Frank. Uh, but you're also going to hear a describer, a describer telling an audience that can't see what there is to see in this scene. This is what it sounds like. Honey, I have a PTA meeting, so your father can take you. With me? Hello. Wait a minute, okay? Look, I don't even... You want to go to the PTA? Deborah stares at Ray, arms crossed. Come on, Dad. Please, 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 please. I want to get there before all the good colors are gone. I'll be in the car. Allie runs outside, leaving the door open. Deborah turns and smiles at Ray. Your daughter is waiting. <laughs> Ray hands the invitation back to Deborah, picks up his coat, and heads for the door. Guy never had a chance. <laughs> While you're there, why don't you pick up a dress for yourself? Ray stands in the doorway with his back to the room for a moment before he shuts the door. All right, so that's how, how that sounds. Now, this isn't the Olympics, and it's not Hairspray Live, so you, you have some time. I don't know how much time, but you have some time to write and add this stuff. What are the challenges? Who, who writes this, and, and how is there, I, I don't know, is there, is there a method for putting all of this uh, extra material into fast-paced dialogue? 
Mm-hmm. Well, it can be very challenging, especially if it's a drama or a horror show where you can't actually see a lot of things. So basically, our writers get the show, and it usually takes for a one-hour show about eight hours to write it. Because you have to determine what the most important thing to say is, and you also have to figure out how you and I, Colin, might say something, three sentences to get a point across. They only have three words to get their point across because they don't want to step on dialogue. So it really is a fine art. We do uh, a lot of training for our writers, and they write for three months before they're up on their own able to write a show on their own because it really, uh, you know, you look at all the different types of shows we do. Like we did 400 SpongeBob SquarePants shows. We did House of Cards for Netflix. All, again, very different genres. So you have to be really skilled at making sure that the things that you are saying are the most important things because you have such limited time. I guess the other question is, why does this get done? I mean, I know morally why it gets done. I know humanistically yeah. why yeah. does it get done. But entertainment companies tend to be a little focused on the bottom line. So um, right. what's the reason to do it? Obviously, there are people who are blind who are part of a market. I don't know if they're a big enough market to drive a decision like this or other reasons have to exist. Well, I think that they do it partially because, you know, it is mandated. But you look at somebody like Netflix, it's not mandated for Netflix to do it. And they've done over 3,000 hours of programming that's audio described for the blind and vision impaired. But one of the things that we're finding is sighted audiences are also enjoying it. You look at how we multitask. You know, we might be watching TV, we might be on our iPad, we're looking at the kids, whatever's going on. And if a show's described... It's, you don't have to be watching it all the time. The airlines are now have audio description in their in-flight entertainment so that a lot of times I'm on a plane and I think I should be you know, working on my computer. There's a really good movie on. I can now put my headset in and it's described. People that are on long commutes, it's like a talking book, basically. You look at how many people binge watch now. So you've got to commute into work every day for an hour. And if you have the description on you know, your phone or your iPad, you can actually be following it without having to watch it. So I think there's a lot of things that are coming out of it that didn't necessarily be, you know, they weren't necessarily part of it being for the blind and vision impaired. You also look at, um, you know, museums want to have descriptions. Now universities are doing it. A lot of corporations are saying, you know, we've got all of this huge client base and some of them are blind, but all of our materials are not accessible to people that are blind, yet we're saying that we're accessible to everybody. They need to take a step back and go, hmm, okay, we need to look at that. Is everything we have accessible to everybody? So it's changing environment. Right. And and there is, some of it is a matter of law, too, right? There was in, uh, I think, 20, in 2010, President Obama signed the 21st Century Communications yeah. and Video Accessibility Act that does mandate some of this inclusion, too. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and that will grow. You know, in Canada now, uh, the CRTC has mandated that 100% of primetime programming has to be described for the blind. And I see the same thing happening in the U.S. soon. Um, you know, it looks like it's going to, I think the, the bill has gone through that it, by 2018, it has to increase. It used to be 50 hours per quarter. Now it's going to be 87 hours per quarter. And I think that you're going to see a lot of the networks are going to be doing it because it's the right thing to do. And when you think about what their budget is for an entire show, 
this really is not that much of the budget, and it makes it accessible to, to everyone. Yeah, and I think you're also, it's fascinating what you say about other people using this stuff, too. I, I do feel as though sometimes I'm at my computer and I've got the TV on, so descriptive video would be great for me. Sometimes there are certain characters on certain shows who mumble, and I can't understand them very well, so closed yeah. captioning would be great for me. So, uh, yeah, it's ultimately maybe we'll all have all of this stuff on. Um, Diane Johnson is president and CEO of Descriptive Video Works. Uh, thanks very much for talking to us about this. We are going to take another break. It'll be in like 90 seconds, so if you don't see J.K. or Mary Sue, our interpreters, for 90 seconds, don't panic. Uh, they'll be coming back, and so will I, and so will one more guest. We're about to break our own show's record for the most people thanked. It's going to sound like we won an Oscar or something. Our producer, Josh Nalea, is the guy who made radio for the deaf happen. And Jonathan McPants produced the actual content for this show with help from me, Kyone Wolf, and Betsy Kaplan. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. And here are some of the other people who helped, encouraged, solved problems, and did essential things. Eugene Amatruda, Heather Brandon, Jeff Bravin. Pat Clark, Joe Koss, Sam Hockaday, Tucker Ives, Ryan Karen King, J.K., Kevin Cool, Mary Sue, Beth Messina, Lauren Rosenthal, Adriana Smith, and Takia Whittle. Also, the American School for the Deaf and Source Interpreting. The part of Bill Curry was played by William Hurt. You should visit the Colin McEnroe Show page on Facebook, where we store everything we do, but especially today, so you can get a taste of what the ASL feed looked like. On tomorrow's show, we're preempted by the inauguration, but we'll be back on Monday with post-inaugural analysis. And now, back to Colin. I'm kind of getting used to this. You mean Mary Sue isn't coming back tomorrow to interpret for me? I have to, I have to work without you? That doesn't seem right. It seems the way th things should be. So there was one name that didn't get mentioned, and I want to mention her now because, to me, she said the most important thing, that Sarah Gerhold, uh, as we were meeting with uh, people from the deaf community and people from the interpreting community uh, about doing this show, Sarah said this really interesting thing. She said uh, to me, she said, I've known you as a columnist, and as a newspaper writer. I've been reading your work for years, and I know that you do radio shows, but I've never heard a radio show. I don't know what that means, really, I don't, or I don't have any real direct experience of it. I may be misquoting her slightly, but to me, that's what solidified uh, our determination to do this, you know, that that notion, because we take it for granted. You know, we just assume that anybody who wants to can hear a radio show. That obviously is not true. So we're going to talk about this uh, a little bit more with um, the man who really kind of got us down going down this road um, a, a while back last year. I think it was last March. Jeff Bravin, the executive director of Source Interpreting at the American School for the Deaf, was in here for a show we were doing about American Sign Language. And as I said at the beginning of the show, one of the things that became obvious was that among the people who could not enjoy that show were people who use American Sign Language. We didn't have any way to get them that show uh, in their language. And we also didn't even really have any way to do a transcript. We made the interns type up a transcript because we didn't have any you know, basic 
default transcription service. So it just pointed up all kinds of ways in which we're doing something right now that another group of people can't enjoy. Um, so first of all, I, Jeff, I guess I'm going to ask, you've been, uh, I think, out in the green room for a while. How's it going? How are we doing so far today? First of all, thank you, Colin, for having me here. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. I was in the green room with Sarah, actually, and Pat, and we were watching it. And it was really amazing to see, finally, we can hear a show. When you talk about listening, you talk about your ears, but we listen through our eyes. So we were able to listen to the show, and it's been amazing to be able to fully participate in the show. I know we've been talking about this for years and years, but it's really happened, so thank you. <laughs> well, one thing that um, I started to think about as we began to work on this show is um, how many of the terms for having attention paid to you are auditory, right? When we want to talk about somebody getting somebody else's attention, we might say, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, you know, or we might say, oh, I wasn't heard. Nobody heard. I, my, my concerns were not heard. That's a very typical way that we express ourselves. So it does make me think that, that the frustrations of the deaf community may be very special. I mean, everybody's concerns are special. But there, there may be a way in which our basic ideas, our basic language for talking about access sometimes does have that auditory component as though one thing that everybody could do is hear. I don't know. Am I making any sense? Does that make sense what I'm saying? Definitely. You make a lot of sense. You have to appreciate, you know, that I'm living in this era. We're talking about somebody who lived 50 to 70 years ago Imagine, they had absolutely nothing at all. Now we have so much more than what we used to have. We have captioning on TV. We have interpreters when available. We have the web, everything on the web, news, et cetera. So our access has been increasing over the years. Also, doors have been opening for deaf people as well. So we have to you know, thank technology for making all that happen. I have, to, I have to say one thing, which is that um, when we planned out this show, we, we knew that we would have to think pretty carefully about how to make sure the interpreters were visible and well lit. Um, and, and it was a little bit complicated. And, but we also thought, well, Jeff has to be on this show. I mean, we wouldn't even be doing this show if we hadn't talked to Jeff in the first place. But, and then we had a lot of conversations where we essentially forgot that Jeff had to be on camera because <laughs> the voice you're hearing, if you're hearing voices, is the voice of JK. She's interpreting for Jeff right now. But, and we were used to thinking the, the interpreters would always be on camera. Jeff has to be on camera. So I think we might have had one meeting where we totally didn't even get that. Um, so um, I want to talk about American Sign Language. That was the show that we, we did back in March of 2016. Um, I, some people listening might think, well, why can't they just do closed captioning or something? What's so great about American Sign Language? Answer that question. American Sign Language is a visual language, and it's for all deaf and hard of hearing people in America. So often people say, captioning is good enough. It's like, no, 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 no. I mean, I'm not criticizing Governor Malloy because he's a great friend of the school, but the state of the union address has always had an interpreter on it. And last week, for some reason, they decided not to have an interpreter. There would only be captioning. But it's like, wait a minute. I mean, maybe captioning is fine for some people who are literate. 
I mean, what about Spanish-speaking people? They have captioning for them, but they have it in, Span- in spoken Spanish as well because many people are not literate. They want to be able to see or hear their own language. We have many deaf people that can read and understand the captioning, but there are many that may struggle with the English language. So by using American Sign Language, it provides full access for all deaf people. So these are things that people often don't understand or don't even think about, but it's part of educating people. I mean, your show is one way for us to educate people. So thank you again. <laughs> the, the, um, I think one of the struggles is making people, especially people in government, but also people in business, understand that this isn't a discretionary part of the budget. If you are running a little bit low on money and you need to save some money, this isn't something that you can cut out. But I think some people do look at it that way. Like, okay, so – you know, our profits are down or revenues are low. Let's not have interpreters this year. That's true. But there are many good foundations, many people with big hearts that do donate money for those types of things. We have many theater groups who find good corporations or banks to provide money for the accessibility And I think we have to find ways to say we are doing this for every human being in America. So we have to be part of that. It has to be part of that entire concept, and that includes the budgetary part. You know, uh, we're almost out of time, Jeff. But one thing I think we both want to say is that we did this first show about accessibility because it made sense. But from now on, what we want to do and what I think deaf people want, they want to hear whatever our typical radio show is, whether it's politics, sports, movies. And that's what it should be, I assume, the typical radio show but made available in ASL. Definitely. I agree with you 100 percent. We talked about this before, universal design. Any building, any place must have be universally designed so it's accessible to all people, whether they're in a wheelchair or they're deaf. It would provide full accessibility and will make us all unified. It will take time, but I think we'll get there. In fact, I know we'll get there. Um, we have to stop now. I kind of hate to stop now, I'm, and I've been really enjoying uh, working with Mary Sue and with JK. It's so much fun. Um, I hope you had fun, too. We're seeing that 29,000 people were reached on Facebook Live. Um, I don't know where those people were or who they are, but if you're listening later to this show and you work at a different radio station and you want to know how to do this, give us a call or email me, Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. I'm just going to have you talk to Josh Nalea because, frankly, I don't know how he did it. <laughs>